Every week, Hillsdale College President Larry Arn joins Hugh Hewitt to discuss great books, great men, and great ideas. This is the Hillsdale Dialogues, presented by Hillsdale College. To find more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, and Ricochet. Welcome back, America. Morning, glory. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. That music means the Hillsdale Dialogue has begun. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. All of the Hillsdale Dialogues are collected at Hugh for Hillsdale. They go back to 2013. There are 460 of them now, I think. And they're done in reverse order at iTunes. If you want to begin at the beginning, you've got to scroll down to number one back in 2013. But we have only just begun... We are in week four of a series on Churchill's books with one of the greatest Churchill scholars alive. He also happens to be president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Larry Arn. And Dr. Arn and I have been making our way through volume one of the history of the English-speaking people, which you see here on my desk. And uh, here is volume one, heavily annotated. We're in a very important segment, Richard II and Henry Bolingbroke. Now, we talked about, you and I, with Stephen Smith, about the play and about whether or not Tudor England made Richard II out to be a worse man than he was. What do you think about that after you read Churchill and compare it to the play, Dr. Arndt? Uh, well, uh, not as bad. Well, he, Shakespeare presents him as a foolish man. Yes. Churchill agrees with that. You know, Because what did he do? He exiled two people and then confiscated the wealth of one of them. And sent the and used the money to send troops off to Ireland, so he was unprotected, and he left one of the people he exiled with a deep grievance, and so that was, you know, Machiavelli 101 would tell you not to do that, uh, and you know he drove them into it. Uh, John Gaunt is a big character in this period of time, and he's a power in Lancaster, in the in the county of. Lancashire, where my wife comes from. Uh, my wife's daddy was High Sheriff of Lancashire, which means he was the official in charge of Lancaster Castle, which is John Acon's ca- castle and still stands. There's got to be an unbroken line of High Sheriffs of Lancaster. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, it's true that uh, uh, Dennis Houghton was his name, very great man, war hero, and his shield hangs in the castle. Ah. And there are, uh, in the Great Hall, that's where they put the high sheriffs, and there are shields of people of his family going back to, you know, this time, going back to John of Gaunt. And, uh, and that's, you know, and they're, they're, you know, he's not, he was not a political power. He was a member of the leading citizens of a parochial county. But he did that big job, and that meant he could give you a tour of the castle, and you could see everything. That was really great. But if you stand up on the top of the castle, the parapets, and look out, it commands an enormous fertile area. It's wealth. It's power, right? And Richard II took that castle away from them. And and he's not as evil. He's stupid. He's not Richard III evil. He's, he's Richard II stupid. Not only does he do that, but then he sends Henry Bolingbroke off. And he also 
I mean, he had a lot of revenge on his heart, right? He couldn't let it go the way that Churchill praised earlier people for letting go of their hatred. Richard II nursed them. Yeah, that's right. And, and you know, it's... Uh, and see, this is very consequential because this is the beginning of the War of the Roses. And the, yes. It's called that because there's a Lancashire rose and it's white, I think, and there's a... Yorkshire rose and it's red, and see those those places, those counties, they're up in the north, toward the Scots border, and along with two other counties, they have to be very warlike because they defend the border against the Scots, and that makes them important. And so uh, they're uh, so stir them up. And against each other, and there can be a lot of killing. And basically, by the time the War of the Roses was over, all of the heirs, all of the direct heirs of the rulers of those families, you know, the dukes and the earls, uh, they were all killed. Churchill says in the History of the English-Speaking People, you need to study this because here we have a record of conflict that is intense and personal, unlike any other record we have. And he does his best not to get you bogged down. But if you don't focus on just a few people, Richard II, Henry Bolingbroke, Richard III, you're going to get lost. Because yeah. the Lancaster, the white roses and the red roses are all over the map. I looked up the map, and, and I said, show me where the red is and the white is. And, I mean, it's a checkerboard. It's absolutely violent and terrible. And in the middle of it comes Watt Tyler and Churchill writes, all this has a modern ring. Wycliffe shows up, the first actual by God, Protestant, ahead, long time ahead of uh, of uh, Martin Luther. Wycliffe is over in London preaching lollardy. And then you, uh, it's just a mess for 50 years. Yeah. And if you think about the Hundred Years' War, you know, which was the war over France, fought mostly between Britain and France, that went on forever. And everybody prominent got killed. And and what were they fighting about? Uh, Churchill actually thinks that they were fighting about something they shouldn't have been fighting about. That they, you know, that France should rule France and Britain should rule Britain. But that doesn't mean he doesn't mark the glory and the sacrifice that went into it on both sides. On both, yeah. and there is lots to go around. Let me jump up to Henry the Fourth. He comes over and he he has to repair everything, and he does that via Parliament. And Churchill is, care, is careful to point out they had a lot of parliaments. They had the good Parliament. They had the mad Parliament. They had the merciless Parliament. But the phrase, grievances before supply, gets written down. I mean, it is after the War of the Roses, when everything is smote, that they really need Parliament. It had been around for 150, 200 years, but they really need Parliament then. Yeah. Yeah, Churchill regards the birth of Parliament as... Uh, made possible by the English Channel and the most important development in British history because it's a system of shared power between the king and the peoples and the, and the representatives of the nobility in the beginning and ultimately the people's representatives. And also, it means talking. And, you know, we learn in our Aristotle that uh, politics is a natural phenomenon stemming from the human faculty of speech. It means we can share our inmost thoughts. Uh, 
And also it means that we have a sense of the good. I think we've studied, you've done Aristotle, so everybody here knows this now. Uh, and, and so government by talking, in a way it's a sort of a redundancy or tautology. That's what government is. We talk. Well, here's the thing, a body that's named parliament, parley, uh, the French, you know, talk. And so this ability to talk through troubles is the great ameliorative. And it doesn't always work. I can't remember when he said the earliest parliament was, let's get two men from every county up here and talk things over. Didn't, the king didn't have to listen to him, but it began, and maybe we ought to check in on what's going on out there. Yeah, and they, you know, the, so we have to find that passage. I have it here somewhere. I'll look. But uh, uh, in the beginning, they invited them to London to talk, these provincials, right, significant people from the provinces, because they needed, they felt like they needed to consult with them, and they had no idea what they were going to do with them. And it was fragile, Churchill says. And then the next thing you know, it becomes strong. And it's got a place, by the way. It's in the Palace of Westminster, and that belongs to the king to this day, or the queen. And, and it takes on forms, and it's hallowed, right? But it starts with just... Let's get some people to come talk to us and see what they think. And uh, that's, you know, that's a, what that means, I think, is because it proceeded at the beginning without a plan, it, it, the need for it, they perceived a natural need, and it thrived because it met that natural need. And, and let me shine you on a little bit, um, and this is not in my script. When Mike Pence called you up, about colleges. He didn't have an answer in the Trump administration. He was looking for input. How often does that happen anymore? Well, informally, it happens a lot. Uh, but, you know, the, the, uh, the best people in government try to talk to people who know, who can contribute. But most in government is people who have power. And they're not in a hurry to listen. Yeah. As 30 years as an administrative lawyer, I can say with quite a deal of certainty, they're not in a hurry to listen. Let me pause, America, in the middle of the War of the Roses with Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, to talk about Henry V and Joan of Arc. Um, because he writes of Joan of Arc that whether or not it was true, it ought to have been a miracle. And of Henry V, there is ample, ample record that what he did was really quite amazing. But why do you think he's so enamored of a French saint who had visions, Dr. Arndt? Of a French king? Oh, you, A French saint, about... Joan of Arc. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, her story. It's uh, one of the things that it's impossible to explain it without thinking about God, right? Yep. This, this young woman had no experience of battle. She heard some voices. And two years later, she had thrown the English, more or less, out of France. And the first time she commanded in a battle, she won it. Uh, 
and you know just what an amazing thing you know mark twain wrote a book about her i didn't know that oh yeah he, it's it's an interesting book he uh it's and it's not like mark twain he uh in the in the introduction to the connecticut yankee uh, he said that uh, he'd wanted to write a serious book, but then he'd run into a bunch of characters, famous people. Pompadour was one of them, and didn't feel like he could, but maybe next time. So after Connecticut Yankee, he wrote Joan of Arc, and 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 it's a very serious book, and uh, so that's a great source. And uh, there's a a movie by Luke Besson called Messenger. And what it's good at, it's about her and about her battles. And what it does is it shows her power, right? Because he, you know, these crusty old generals, and what that war, 100 years of war, right? What it had become was a kind of a way of life, right? They don't extinguish us, and we we don't extinguish them. And think, you know, one of the reasons I, I fancy that Churchill thought the British ought to get out of France, is because France is full of French people. And can we really rule them? We don't live the way they do. We don't live among them. Uh, we've discovered uh, America in our conquest of Germany and of Japan and of, uh, you know, in the Middle East. Pretty soon you got to get out of there. you got to leave. Because, you know, we're busy governing ourselves. And no matter she, how many how many of us there are, it's hard for us to govern them. Uh, and so that's the thing. And she grows up in the soil of France and also with a message from God. And that's incredible. And two, two it turns, turns that whole thing around. When Charles is crowned, quote, by his side stood the maid resplendent with her banner proclaiming the will of God. If this was not a miracle, it ought to be. And then to sum her up, Joan was so being uplifted from the ordinary run of mankind that she finds no equal in a thousand years. Out of her own mouth, she can be judged in each generation. She embodied the natural goodness and valor of the human race in unexampled perfection, unconquerable courage, infinite compassion, the virtue of the simple, the wisdom of the just, shown forth in her in his admonition all soldiers should read her story and ponder on the words and deeds of her true warrior who in a single year though untaught in technical arts reveals in every situation the key to victory that's still an admonition as well for the generals ought always not to be listened to yeah they you know that's uh one of the things that she brought was a determination this has got to stop, right? This is not, we're not living properly now, fighting these invaders forever and ever. And remember, they, they, they were not invaders in the beginning. Uh, the, the, you know, the first invasion was William the Conqueror. He invaded, and he brought a bunch of France with him. And it took a long time to get rid of all that that he brought with him. And to separate the two warring contestants, back to the War of the Roses, Henry, uh, it's just so incredibly complicated, but Dr. Arne actually has familial ties, so I'm not sure he can be a fair judge of this, but we'll try. 
Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. We've begun many months into Churchill, the corpus of his works. We are in the uh, end of the first volume of the history of the English-speaking people, and we're in the War of the Roses. And Churchill, I found the quote during the break, historians have shrunk from the Wars of the Roses. We are, however, in the presence of the most ferocious and implacable quarrel of which there is a factual record. It was a conflict in which personal hatreds reached the maximum and from which mass effects were happily excluded. There must have been many similar convulsions in human story. None, however, has been preserved with characters at once so worldly and so expensively chiseled. That's why he studies it, Larry. Have you spent a lot of time studying it? You mean the War of the Roses? Yes. Uh, uh, Relatively speaking, I'm not a scholar of the War of the Roses, and I claim to be a scholar of some things, so I know more about those. But the War of the Roses has always been interesting to me for familial reasons, because I've been there and seen one of the main scenes of it. Uh, But also, it's, you know, if you try to understand Britain... One of the things you have to understand, uh, like the, the proper name of, of Britain is the United Kingdom of uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Great Britain means Scotland and Wales, too. And Northern Ireland means the northern part of Ireland. And that, that the death and the time that it took to bring all that together into one but that is the condition of Britain playing the big part in the world that it played. And, and so, yeah, that's very important. And you can see, by the way, that uh, the system of governance that they had back then was, in an important respect, dysfunctional. Because it depended on inheritance. And, you know, one of the lessons of the War of the Roses in every dynastic war is it's always sons, and sometimes the sons are not very capable. Sometimes they are, and the war ebbs and flows with that. But the passion to have your son uh, take over is something that can't be compromised, you see. And so Churchill favors representative government, and that has its pitfalls, but in the end it's, Churchill called it uh, the association of us all in the leadership of the best, the natural aristocracy. And, and so that's, that has better potential. Much better potential. Yeah. Uh, when, when we begin the War of Rose, the Battle of Towton in 1461, so people get an idea, 50,000 people are fighting in a snowstorm. And Churchill writes, um, not only the throne, but one-third of the estates in England changed hands when it was over. It was measure of measure, and that was the start. It went on for 25 more years. And at the end of it, Henry VI, a breathing ruin, sitting like a sack upon his throne, is back on the throne for a brief period of time, and a third of the land in England returned to its old possessors. This is why the American Constitution has in it a prohibition on bills of attainder. Larry Arn. I try and teach us that the American Constitution reflects the learned history of Great Britain as the colonists remembered it. Yeah, and uh, and you know it's uh, you know the sublimest things about the American Constitution are two: 
representation which makes possible separation of powers. And so if the legislature passes a bill to arrest somebody, well, those are politicians, right, and they're organized on partisan land, uh, grounds. And it's no more good, it's, it's no better for the executive to convict somebody than for the legislature to attaint somebody, which is what's forbidden in that bills of attainder. And, and uh, that, you know, because it's not their job, and because you got judges for that, and the judges serve during good behavior. So that, you know, that's... Uh, 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 some of the things that happen in British history, and in, in the War of the Roses in particular, they're like what happened to in Athens, right? Uh, in the Peloponnesian, yes, yes. In the Peloponnesian War, uh, why was Alcib- Alcibiades such a jerk? Why did he serve? He was an Athenian, served with distinction. Then he served with the Spartans. Then he served with the Persians. Then he went back to the Athenians, right? Why was he so disloyal? Well, partly it was his nature. He was not a good man, according to uh, to, um, Xenophon. But also, they were always going to arrest him. You know, he goes off to Syracuse with a big force, and the the Athenians were always doing this. And then the people met, and, you know, uh, only a portion of the citizens would fit in the amphitheater where the legislature met on the Acropolis. And so if a different bunch showed up, they'd send off a force somewhere in triremes to go take the place or fight in the place. And the next week they'd meet again, and they'd send another bunch of triremes to go arrest all those people. And that's changeable, and, uh, uh, and you know, you need stability. You know, the, uh, not a month ago, Dr. Kissinger and I were talking about his new book, Leadership, and I asked him what he's reading now. He's 99 years old. He's probably written his last chapter. I mean, literally his last chapter, and it's such a dire one. He said, I read historical fiction now. And I said, really? He said, yes, it's the only way to get anything down uh, at my age. And uh, I, I like I like historical fiction. You made me think of it because Stephen Pressfield wrote a book about Alcibiades called The Tides of War, yeah, which really is a marvelous novel. Yeah, because he's such a fast, and you can't keep him straight. It's like the War of the Roses. I don't know if there's a good historical novel of the War of the Roses. Are you aware of one? Uh, it doesn't spring to mind right now. Ken Follett's got some good ones on the Tudors. He's got yeah. three, in fact, on the Tudors, which are worth reading, and they're kind of straightforward. You start with Henry the Seventh, they move through Henry the Eighth, and you move on through. Mary Queen, Bloody Mary and Elizabeth, and then you're at the other end. But the War of the Roses, this is a nightmare. I'm surprised, actually, that the shield of your father-in-law is still around. Because didn't everything get burned every 10 years? Uh, not that, no, no. Okay. Uh, so the Take a big fire to burn that castle. <laughs> have you been in the castle? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's uh, uh, here's a great thing. There are two great features of it that my father-in-law loved and showed with great delight. One was down in the dungeon, very dark. You could, you know, you could develop pictures down there. Uh, little slits of windows, kept them closed a lot. And the exercise yard was not as big as my study, down in this dark place. But then there was a spiral staircase, and when you got to the top of it, you were in the court, and you were in the dock. 
And, the, and then, uh, so there you are, right? And then in the dock with you was a, uh, a device. It was a, sort of a hasp. Uh, there was a metal loop to put your hand in and another one to lock over your wrist. And if you were sent to, sentenced to branding, they would brand you right there. Uh, that's one thing my father-in-law loved. They Medieval justice. M for malefactor. M? Uh, yeah. Now, the other thing he loved was uh, if you were sentenced to be hanged, you'd be taken up some stairs just outside the courtroom, and you'd get to a high place, and there was a balcony looked down on a little meadow where lots of people could gather and watch you die. And beside the, this, this place, there was a high chair for hanging children. Oh, my God. Yeah, we're going to come back and talk about the low point of these books, Richard III. But I do want to talk about Henry VI for a moment. He's a moron. He's an idiot. And yeah. uh, uh, of some... Uh, he, he apparently could speak. I mean, he, he ruled for a while, but then he just became dumber and dumber and dumber and exhausted, et cetera. But they kept him alive until his son died, and then it was off with his head. Yeah, I think that is interesting because you averred to it earlier. You'll do anything to keep your son or uh, on the throne. Sometimes a daughter, but always a son, right? Yeah. Well, uh, that's you know, I'll I'll uh, I'll jump the gun a little bit because we'll return to it, but. Uh, that, you know, that that's it. A bunch of women died because they didn't give Henry VIII a son. Yep. Because they all thought a woman couldn't rule. And after he was, de- he was dead, it emerged that he had a son, and her name was Elizabeth. Yeah. <laughs> and we, we get to her next week, because the best volume of these four volumes is the second, in my view, except the Constitution comes in late. But uh, we, we're coming up to Edward the Fourth, end of his reign, and they've got to bring somebody in. And Richard the Third shows up, and this is. Let's just give a quick look. How much of the play do you think is relevant to the history? Well, um, how much of it is true? Uh, yeah. Well, we don't know, right? We don't know if he killed those boys in the tower. Uh, we do know that he had them in the tower. And they died, and that's it. Does make him responsible for that? And he was so, supposed to be their guardian, and it was to his advantage if they were to die. So it's not quite QED, but it's close. It's close. And Thomas More, uh, this is the last point. In this uh, Thomas More writes the history of Richard the the Third, and Churchill cautions he was on the he was w- writing under the Tudor eye. So he had to make sure that Richard III looked really bad. Yeah. Do we have to be aware of historians for the same reason? Yeah, um, especially when they have a direct stake, right? And Churchill's habit, by the way, is uh, he doesn't want to portray history as a simple good and evil story. Because if that's all it is, then kill all your enemies. Right, and he doesn't want politics to be like that. And it's also true that especially people who do consequential things, there's always something good in them, you know, something. And uh, so he doesn't want to lose sight of that because Churchill wants to ameliorate politics. He doesn't want it to be destruction and and bitterness and animosity all the time. So 
he's not as quick as Thomas More to convict Richard III of murdering those two little boys. We'll talk about that when we come back. They did find some things in the tower. We'll talk about that after the break. Dr. Larry on all things Hillsdale, hillsdale.edu. This is the Hugh Hewitt Show. Nine and twelve. They are the sons of Edward, the King of England, who dies probably of appendicitis. His brother Richard of Gloucester takes over as regent. The mother hides in Westminster Hall, newly constructed with one of her sons. The older of them is obtained by Richard of Gloucester, the regent. And how does history work? Thomas More said he's evil incarnate. Dr. Orange has said maybe not. Um, there is a line that recalls Shakespeare on page 485. Knights come to Richard. They say, look, you're a good regent. Let's make you king. Quote, with becoming modesty, Richard persistently refused. But then the children disappeared. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, Harry Jaffa used to tell a story about uh, Lincoln. You know, Lincoln is, uh, when they come from the Chicago convention at the Wigwam to tell Lincoln, he's got the uh, nomination. He's immersed in a book. And uh, Harry Jaffa would say, yeah, that's like Richard III being immersed in a book when they come to tell him that yeah. you know, he's, he's, uh, he was interested in the outcome and probably distracted by the possibilities. Yeah, they, the English people, this is my good line, page four, the English people of those days still retain the faculty of horror. And it was excited and it did not soon forget. Do the American people still retain the faculty of horror, Dr. Arndt? Well, there's reason to be concerned about that. It, you know, it's, uh, everything's an emergency now. And uh, everything is whipped up. And uh, the media, you know, for all its supposed diversity, it's amazing how you, it's hard to get away from the story of the day. And... Uh, we just had our freshman foundation lectures, uh, you know, because we try to teach them how the college works and how they're supposed to behave. And one of our strongest adjurations is stay off social media. Oh, boy. And, and then the other thing is uh, it's good if you're politically interested. Most of them are, although few are primarily or principally interested in that. But don't spend too much time on that. Because you're too young and ignorant to save the country, you need to learn some stuff, and that's you know it's just cons- how, uh, how what a uniform maw is the press, every source of information, and uh, so I have I have rules about that. Uh, I read I scan the Wall Street Journal in the morning, and. Uh, I get an email from the Epic Times, and I scan the headlines, and once in a while I click on one, and then I'm done with all that. Uh, you know, you're the person who drags me into public affairs more than I would care to be, uh, because you can't do both, right? You can't lead. Not well. You can't well. lead this. I mean, you, you. I, I'm, I, I'm just about to praise you again, but that'd be three times in a week. Uh, but, you know, you keep your head on your shoulders, right? And it's hard to do that if 
if your time horizon is a month or a day. And that that is, you know, there needs to be time. And it's particularly for, hard if you're young and your passions are up and the comments are harsh. They can unduly wear on you. And like criticism of you bounce off. I, I, you know, the New Yorker could come in and declare you to be Richard III, and it wouldn't bother you because you know you're not. But yeah. if you declare one of your students to be Richard III, they'll be depressed for a month. That's right. If you say that this is the worst thing that ever happened to people who don't know what ever happened, yes. they might believe it. Yeah. And uh, okay. that's, you know, so that's... Uh, and see, that, that, you know, that's one reason why this book is valuable, or Shakespeare's history plays are valuable. This is the reflections of a man who's got a deep appreciation of politics and who's practiced them at a high level. And now for the highest stakes. For the highest stakes, with That's everything right. on the line, all of freedom on the line against not just a competitor king, but the Nazi evil that will, will destroy millions and imprison the rest. And don't forget immediately following that, the communist evil. And he, you know, there didn't have to be a war about that one, just had to be misery for 60 years. Did he write this between losing and, and winning? Yeah, most of it. Yeah, he did. Uh, he, I, I remember, he wrote it before. And he even worked on it a little bit during. Uh, but that was just desperation. I mean, the reason I like to tell that story about that man who came to visit Martin Gilbert is Churchill was living a normal life doing these extremely unusual things and he had money troubles and uh, uh, but yeah he he uh, and see his, he, he there's a kind of settled conviction in Churchill that uh, he, he once said to a young man he said politics is the art of inclusion not exclusion and we will include more of the history of the English-speaking people. That's called a transition. Next week, as we move into Volume 2, you can catch up. You ought to catch up. And all things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu. Thanks for listening to the Hillsdale Dialogues presented by Hillsdale College. For more episodes, search for Hillsdale Dialogues at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, iHeart, or Ricochet. For more information about Hillsdale College, at to hillsdale.edu.